Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, thank you so much, David, for your kind welcome. Um, It's also good of you to mention that little book uh, on Habakkuk. And the reason I just want to mention it again is not because you need that one, but it's part of a whole series of uh, lovely books, which are devotions on Bible books. It's called Food for the Journey. Uh, We are very grateful to IVP for helping in the production of those books, which come out of uh, Keswick Ministries. And uh, Eleanor Trotter, who I think is here somewhere, uh, our consulting editor, um, has done a great job in uh, helping us put that series forward. So could I recommend it? I don't know if you've seen them before. Um, There are a whole range of them in different Bible books. Um, They're in the right size, so you can just have it in your pocket when you're on a bus or when you're waiting at a bus stop or wherever you are. Um, I know quite a few churches which have bought a whole set for their members when they're looking at a Bible book, they're looking at uh, Romans or whatever it might be. Um, It's a a good value uh, contribution for all members to follow through a Bible book day by day. So food for the journey, my IVP, is something we'd like to recommend. That's the end of the adverts, and uh, let's turn to this remarkable chapter of Habakkuk 2. Um, I wonder what you felt as uh, David read those verses. I mean, after all, the sun is shining out there, uh, the beach is just half a mile down the road, and here we are looking at a series of woes spoken in the 7th century BC in this apparently obscure little prophecy. But in fact, although it is a demanding passage, as you would have seen as we uh, read it through, it is extremely important. And we're looking, as you see on the screen, at this theme of trusting God in turbulent times. And I wonder if you would agree with me that one of the questions which often surfaces in these turbulent times is, well, where is this going? What does the future hold? That was certainly in Habakkuk's mind and is part of the revelation that we're going to look at this morning. Well, as we think about that, what does the future hold, um, we may have various uh, thoughts. You probably know the uh, well-known Chinese proverb, to prophesy is extremely difficult, especially with regard to the future. Um, In fact, you probably know there's no shortage of people trying to do so. You go into any bookshop, you'll find a whole futures section. Some of them are surprisingly optimistic as they predict what the future might hold, but the vast majority of writers, at least the ones that I've seen, line up with a remark that was made by Arthur C. Clarke. You might remember him. He was famous for a movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And he said this, "'No age has shown more interest in the future than ours,' which is ironic, since it may not have one. Many people, of course, share his pessimism. Uh, Around the world, there is now a deep-set uncertainty about what the future holds. Uh, We're no longer quite so optimistic about the future of our planet, uh, the future of our nation, even our own future. It's especially telling for the rising generation. This generation of young people in our country is the first generation in over 100 years to have less high hopes than their parents. And this is, I say, perhaps one of the most significant elements of living at a time of turbulence, of global, national, maybe personal turbulence. Where is it all heading? 
The issue at the heart of this prophecy that we're looking at, the book of Habakkuk, the issue is God's purposes. Habakkuk had been struggling, as we saw in chapter 1, struggling to make sense of his own world in relation to what he believed. The Lord reigns. God is in control. And what emerges in the rest of the prophecy from now on is that all of history is in fact being directed by the Lord. It is going to bring about his purposes. Um, yesterday we looked at the key verse, in the previous, uh, uh, just a, a verse or two before, verse 4. But the righteous will live by faith or faithfulness. And we saw that there are only two ways to live, either like the righteous by faith or in proud unbelief like those ungodly Babylonians that we were describing yesterday. And not only are there two ways to live, there are therefore two destinies. Well, we know what kind of world we live in. By and large, this is a world which is defiantly against God and his purposes. It's a world which thinks that humanity has the authority, the power, the control. Uh, to quote a rather extravagant comment from the physicist Paul Davies, truly, we should be lords of the universe, he says. So where is this world heading? And what is going to happen to men and women or govern, uh, governments or tyrants who shake their little fist at God? What's going to happen to them? Well, this next section that we're reading describes the way in which the Lord, who is the Alpha and the Omega, sees the end from the beginning. It's an extraordinary vision, not just of the future of the Babylonians, but the future of our world, the future of all men and women. And the prophecy outlines two certainties which we're just going to look at briefly. The first certainty is obvious, the certainty of God's judgment. Um, you would have noticed the repetition of the word woe. It appears five times. And woe is a kind of mocking word of derision. You know, you think you're in charge? You've got another thing coming. In fact, it's called a taunt song, these five woes. I think uh, we're familiar with the idea of a taunt song from football terraces. If you ever go to a football match and you're standing there on the terrace with a group of supporters for one side, they sing their songs, they point their finger at the opposition, they're announcing their impending defeat. It's a taunt song. Some people think it includes the idea of mourning, like a funeral chant, or maybe even an, ang an angry curse. Shame on you. Woe. And the focus of this taunt song, as I've already implied, is the Babylonians and the way in which God is going to act in judgment against them. But I think we can say that the field of view was not only the Babylonians, but also for Habakkuk's own people, the Lord's own people. And beyond that, to all nations, all governments, all kings, all individuals who want to live life on their own terms, not by faith, but by proud unbelief. So as we look at these taunts, it's perhaps important to reflect on our own understanding of the idea of judgment. It's not a comfortable theme. In fact, some years ago, uh, Jim Packer wrote this in his book, Knowing God. Christians are happy to speak of God as father, but not as judge. 
the idea is repellent and unworthy. But there are a few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. As I said on Monday morning, actually Habakkuk didn't really have that problem. He wanted justice. He wanted God to act in judgment. He longed to see evil people judged. He didn't want to see nations get away with it. And I think when you reflect on it, that's probably how many people, Christian and non-Christian, think today. Why does God let people off the hook? The people of Syria want to see justice done. They want to see people called to account for the atrocities in their nation. People who suffer from terrorist attacks want to see those who are responsible for those attacks face justice. And perhaps that's why in, in the Bible, especially in many of the Psalms, the idea of God coming in judgment is actually a cause for rejoicing. It is something of a paradox, we might think, but here's uh, Psalm 96. Do you remember at the end of that psalm? Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. In other words, God is finally going to restore everything to how it should be. And for God's people, that's a cause of rejoicing. Well, how is he going to do so? What is the object of God's judgment? So very quickly, just the bullet points of these five woes. I've given them a little title in the hope of summarising what each woe is about. Here's the first one, verses 6 to 8. Selfish ambition. And this first woe pronounces judgment on the Babylonians for their greed, their injustice. You see there in verses 6 and 7, so I put it on the screen. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Well, that was definitely what the Babylonians did. They robbed other nations. They accumulated more and more in this selfish ambition. They trampled on everybody. They, uh, they were like unscrupulous and money lenders, they extorted interest on their debtors. So the tone of those voices is that the, uh, those verses is that the Babylonian army feathered their own nest at their victims' expense. And we're quite familiar with that, aren't we? Actually, that's, I think, the mood of the culture, the creed of our age. Look after number one. Grab all you can. Do others before they do you. And people are driven to want more and more and more and they don't care who they trample on in the process. Well, if that's the way of life of the ungodly, this woe also explains the outcome, the inevitable destiny of people who live like this. They think they're invincible. They think they're triumphant. They think they can accumulate. They can plunder more and more. They mock God. Do they get away with it? Is it all out of control? Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. And this is a little device which you, is used all the way through the taunt song. In other words, the way you behave will now be visited upon you. You think that you're invincible. But the Lord is going to turn the tables. The plunderer, verse 8, will be plundered. 
he will get his just desserts. In other words, justice will come knocking. God will judge. And sure enough, as we know from Scripture and the book of Daniel, a time would come when the Babylonians would be destroyed. In Daniel 5, there's a dramatic story, I'm, I'm sure you remember it well, a record of that day when Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was feasting and all of his uh, courtiers were enjoying the fruit of all of their ill-gotten gains from this selfish ambition. And then there is a finger on the wall. Do you remember that dramatic moment? Writing on the plaster of that palace, the finger of God, the king soon found out what it meant. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. God kept his word. And it's a reminder to Christians in any age, in any culture, who are wondering about the apparent success of evil or the advance of these empires with selfish ambition and pride, <clears throat> the Taliban, ultimately the plunderer will be plundered. The victor will become the victim. I think with all of these five woes, although they're directed obviously in this instance at the Babylonians, it's always good for us as God's people to ask the question, to what extent are we impacted by this attitude? Um, the fact is, our, our prevailing philosophy in this country at least is eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow we diet. In other words, maximize on your present experience. And some people do that as a way of avoiding thinking about ultimate issues and we're a part of that culture. It's very easy for Christians to be caught up with the dangers of selfish ambition or greed. But God's people, we've seen, are called to live by faith in the God who provides, not by greed, not by a concern for selfish gain. Here's the second woe, verses 9 to 11, it's false security. And again, as we read it, we see another graphic description of people or a nation that thinks it's in control. Here it is, verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain or to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. So he builds his life on money that's been gained dishonestly. He does everything he can to make it secure. In fact, history tells us the Babylonians did that. They tried to make sure that their land was secure by constantly expanding their borders, by using some nations as kind of buffer zones. And the attitude here is very common in our world. People think they can guard themselves against any disaster. So they buy their security, they buy their insurances, they sort out their rivals, they think they've made it. Well, have they? Again, verse 11, the stones of the wall will cry out. Their own buildings will give a testimony against them. Their schemes will backfire, the Lord is saying. These great edifices that they've built will cry out for vengeance. Um, it is extraordinary when you read a little bit about the Babylonian Empire. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had enormous pride in his, his palace complex which he erected. Uh, the walls of this palace complex were 136 feet thick. Can you imagine? And on the outer walls, 
Nebuchadnezzar had his name inscribed on every brick. That shows you this unbelief and pride. Of course, the uh, gardens, the terrace gardens, are listed as one of the seven wonders of the world. And he even named his palace the marvel of mankind. So there's some irony, isn't there? If you look at verse 10, you have forfeited your life. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon thought he owned the whole world. But as Jesus was to say, what does it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your life? So again, the message in Habakkuk's day and the message in our world is very clear. Judgment will come. The writing is on the wall. It's inescapable. Again, let's remember verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. So our calling is to walk by faith, not by sight. But again, I ask the question of us as God's people, uh, where does our security lie? Um, I often remember a party which Margaret and I went to. It was a friend of a similar age to us who was celebrating her, her birthday. And we both came away, we drove home thinking, well, that was extraordinary, the number of people who were talking together about houses and insurance and pensions and investments. Quite a lot of them were Christians. I mean, it's partly to do with our age, I suppose, when people tend to think of those things, but it seemed almost to be dominating people's thoughts, their own security. Of course, we need to handle all that wisely, but... As God's people, our security lies in trusting the Lord who reigns. It's very easy for our security to be found by trusting in the things of this world. Um, when I was working with IFS, I had a good friend in Sierra Leone. He lived through the Civil War and uh, he wrote an email to us. I quote it, I'm sorry I don't have it on screen. The only security we have is God. And the only assurance we have is our salvation. I'm learning to look at what matters in life, not just to waste time on things that do not have eternal value. He was living through a turbulent time. And it's wise, isn't it, to have our eyes on that horizon. Here's number three. Are you still with me? Are we, are we all okay? Here's number three, the woe of ruthless power from verses 12 onwards. And we move a further stage as we go through from houses to cities built on bloodshed. Here's verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town with crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's palace, Nebuchadnezzar's palace, which I was just describing, certainly would have impressed the tourists, wouldn't it? But did it impress God? No. He saw something quite different. And there's a similar chilling outcome in this woe. Verse 12, it is just fuel for the fire. All of that proud effort in building that edifice just goes up in smoke. And do you remember... The lovely psalm, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. It's the same word that Habakkuk uses there. The people exhaust themselves for nothing. It's in vain. 
working for nothing more substantial than a puff of smoke. And as I said yesterday, Jeremiah was prophesying at the same time as Habakkuk, and he had exactly the same perspective of what was going on. He almost uses the same language. This is from Jeremiah 51. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick walls will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the fire. So everything this Babylonian empire has done in building for itself will just end up as fuel in the fire of God's judgment. How can we be certain? Verse 13, has not the Lord Almighty determined it? God's judgment is certain. It is coming. Again, just a quick application in terms of our own lives. I often think of the words in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul asks us, how are we building? Do you remember that passage? He says our lives are on the security, the secure foundation of Jesus Christ. But, he says, how are you building? You can either build with wood, hay and stubble or you can build with something that will last forever. Gold, silver, precious stones. Because one day, our building is going to be tested the way we've lived our lives, what we've invested in, well, we'll discover whether it's just going up in a puff of smoke or whether we have built for eternity, we've built for the kingdom. It's a very important passage, I think, 1 Corinthians 3. It's an important reminder that we should live and work now in the light of that future. We come to number four, we're nearly there, and that is and we just click forward, sorry, that's it. Shameless exploitation, verses 15 to 17. And this woe introduces various forms of exploitation. I just mentioned two that we find here. We'll take verse 17 first of all. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. So it's a description of the exploitation of the created world, the terrible environmental damage which is caused by Babylonian excess. So the reference to Lebanon probably is just a, an image there of the idea of the forests, the beautiful trees of Lebanon as a figure of speech. The rest of the verse refers to the destruction of animals. So the Lord is noticing what people are doing to his world. We shouldn't miss God's concern about the devastation of his creation. Now that's much more on our agenda these days, isn't it? And evangelicals too are, are concerned with what we sometimes call green theology. In other words, what is happening in terms of our world? God is concerned about the impact of sin on every corner of his creation. And the outcome is again announced there in verse 17. The violence you have done will overwhelm you. I've clicked on to the second area of exploitation, and that is the vulnerable. You'll see it there in verses 15 and 16. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Actually, this is easily recognisable in our culture today. The woe is directed at people who might use alcohol to seduce people, 
And of course, we read about that in newspapers, we hear about the reports, it's come to prominence in trials of so-called date rape. The point, though, I think is much broader than just that. It is any exploitation of people who've been made in God's image. The woe is directed clearly at those who have no respect for humankind, no respect for the dignity of others. These people will go to any lengths to achieve their ends. We saw that in chapter one, the, the ruthlessness of this Babylonian war machine. Other people are simply objects and they're to be manipulated, exploited in any way so that I achieve my selfish desires. And we see that sadly in our world, don't we? That's 12,400 refugees who've tried to get across the channel this year alone. We see it in the exploitation of cheap labor. Children in sweatshops, Albanian women in the sex industry, all kinds of trafficking. This is exploiting the vulnerable. And this is also the subject of God's judgment. They're graphic illustrations of what happens in societies, our own included, when people live without God. And the same pattern occurs as in all of the other woes, verse 16, he's brought shame on others, now the Lord will bring shame on him. And there's a remarkable little phrase in verse 16, now it's your turn. You know, every time I read that, I almost get a, a chill down my spine. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. You know, on that night when King Belshazzar was uh, having his party and they were feasting and drinking, they were using the cups which they'd taken from the temple. They were praising their gods. They were mocking Yahweh. That very night, this verse in chapter 2, verse 16 was fulfilled. Now it's your turn. Now the truth is God sees and God acts. The cup of judgment will come. This image of the cup of judgment is used by quite a few other prophets. I just put them up quickly on the screen. Isaiah spoke about the cup of his wrath. Uh, Jeremiah uses the same language, a cup filled with the wine of my wrath. Ezekiel, a cup large and deep, it will bring scorn and derision. So it's a symbol of the idea of God's, God's judgment on the wicked. And here it is in the woe in Habakkuk 2. As you think about the cup of judgment, where does it take you? Where does it take us? Well, of course, it does take us to Gethsemane, doesn't it? And Jesus, who takes the cup of God's wrath for us. It's no wonder that Jesus initially shrank from taking that cup. It represented the judgment that we deserve, God's wrath. Jesus was to face that when he went to the cross. How can we ever understand the content of that cup that he took? He drank it to the dregs. He bore our sin. And his drinking of that cup means that we who are in Jesus Christ, who put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, will no longer have to fear the Lord's woe. Um, written across this chapter, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of thing where you could say amen, if you like. <laughs> well, we now come to the final woe. And it's the most obvious in some sense that this is a woe spoken to people who are living the opposite of a life of faith in the living God. Uh, these people are worshipping dumb idols, so I've called it foolish idolatry. It's there in verses 18 to 20. Uh, the Babylonians, of course, knew all about this. I mean, they ascribed their success to their idols, to their various godlets. Uh, they looked for guidance to their idols. So there's a fair amount of satirical mockery in these verses, as you'll find also in other prophets. And there it is, their language has one main purpose, it's to demonstrate that these idols are nothing compared to Israel's God who is living and active and all-powerful and in control. So the verses highlight the folly of trusting in something you've made yourself. Verse 18, he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Can it give guidance? Well, it happens, doesn't it? Even today, people longing for guidance, longing for some sense of control over their lives, turn to all kinds of things, superstition, astrology, which is still on the increase. Horoscopes is, is booming in our culture. All kinds of substitute gods, idolatries. If we had to name one main idolatry in our culture, I think we would have to say it is the self. And one of the words now firmly embedded in our world, and certainly now in the Oxford English Dictionary, is the selfie. You know what it is. We post pictures of ourselves on social media. Did you see this week, there's a queue of one hour at the top of Snowdon so that people could take selfies on the summit. Apparently, we now take in the order of 93 million selfies a day around the world. And it almost implies, I don't want to overstate it, but it's almost as though, you know, I'm, I'm at the centre. I'm at the centre of my universe. So Brian Appleyard, who's a very astute uh, social commentator, put it like this. The only possible sin, talking about our culture, is the sin against oneself. The idea is everywhere. Self-help, self-esteem, making the best of oneself, looking one's best, self-realisation. These are the great contemporary virtues. Therefore, the one recognized sin is failure to look after numero uno. I wonder again if this sometimes says something to us as God's people. We have our substitute gods sometimes, don't we? It might be our possessions. It might be our plans for the future, which I've already mentioned. It might be our own self-obsessions. Um, another writer who hits this quite uncomfortably, is John Piper. He talks about our hunger for God, what we truly hunger after. I just have time for one quote from him. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. When people replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognisable, almost incurable. And so we note in, in verse 18, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? And from this verse, of course, 
Um, many people have commented that idolatry is self-deceiving. It is counterfeit. Well, the Lord stands against that kind of pretense, as we've seen all of these five woes. What are we to make of them all? Thank you so much for surviving all of those five in the last few minutes. Well, it leads to a second certainty on which we're going to finish. And you would have spotted it, I'm sure. As David read those verses, there were some shafts of light in the darkness. So let's just mention those two things. It's under the theme of the certainty of God's rule. Here's the first one. A present reality. It's right at the end of the chapter. Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So it's set in the context of idolatry, which we've just been looking at, but the Lord is not going to be found in any of these images. He is the holy, awe-inspiring, universal Lord. He's on his throne, ruling and overruling. And so the word comes, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the world be silent. Stop all of these arguments. Stop all of these assertions of human power and control. It's a call for reverence because this is the Lord of the universe in his holy temple. And he is going to put everything to rights. As we've seen in each of these woes, God will act. God will judge. He will be acknowledged even by those wicked nations. He is the sovereign Lord. That's our theme at Worldwide. He is active in history. He will bring about his purposes. And all men and women, all rulers, all governments, all tyrants, all dictators will be called to submit to him. These verses, of course, this particular verse, represents the answer that the Lord is giving to Habakkuk's questions. Early on in chapter 1, where is it all heading? The Lord is seated on his kingly throne. He's in his temple. That's the place of ultimate authority. He is above all of this turbulence. He's involved, but he is well above it as the controlled sovereign Lord. He is Lord of all the earth. So this little verse at the end of all of these woes packs a punch you know, there's no room for asserting our own independence. Instead, it's a call to worship him in his holy temple. And unlike those fickle deities of paganism that we're looking at, we've just been looking at, this is a reliable God. He's completely faithful. He's the unchanging ruler who's created the world, who sustains it, and who will wrap everything up on that final day. Well, that's the present reality. The Lord is in his holy temple. Here's the, the third, uh, sorry, the second and the final thing. There is a future certainty. Because smack in the middle of these woes, you would have seen it in verse 14, right in the middle of the taunt song. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it's an incredible shaft of light, isn't it? in the midst of this statement of judgment. We've looked at all of the powers of empires, the pretensions of different rulers, the proud, the arrogant posturing of people who think they're in charge of the world, they're in charge of their, their own lives. 
What will be left on that future day? Where is it all heading? And it is the certainty of the universal knowledge of the glory of God. That's what the Lord spoke through Habakkuk. Isaiah uses a phrase almost the same, not quite, but almost the same as he looks ahead to that great messianic era when the Lord will send the deliverer and he prophesies of David's greater son. And of course, we know it points towards the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus about whom we've just been speaking, whose purposes on the cross led to the destruction of evil, the establishment ultimately of a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So all other glories that we've been reading about, all of those things will fade away in the light of this supreme glory. It's a wonderful description of the ultimate purposes of God. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is what Paul says about God's ultimate purpose, his mission statement. It appears in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. Do you remember this? He's talking about God making known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. To put into effect, when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's a remarkable verse because it tells us where everything is heading in our world. And Paul says everything will be summed up to find its unity, its headship, its completion, its shalom in Jesus Christ. Now, you might know that the Greeks literally did add up. Uh, for some reason, when we do our adding up, we put the total at the bottom. You know, your Excel sheet does that automatically. But the Greeks added up, and they put the total at the top. And Paul is saying, that's where it's headed. Everything is going to be added up to find its completion, this wholesome shalom, this final uh, kingdom in Jesus himself. That is God's, person, uh, God's purpose. And we Christians, of course, find our hope embedded in that big story of God who is in control from the beginning to the end, from one eternity to another. Well, here in chapter 3, uh, chapter 2 and verse 14 uh, is, is, is the greatest encouragement, I think, in this little prophecy. For every Christian that we've been praying about, particularly over the weekend as we thought about God's people under pressure, 200 million evangelicals, who are facing direct and hostile persecution. To such people, and indeed to us too, who wonder where all of this is going to end up. In the midst of turbulent times, Habakkuk points us to this ultimate reality. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that is also at the heart of mission. Let me finish by reminding you of how it's written in Psalm 96, which we quoted yesterday. Declare his glory among the nations. It's a lovely verse because it not only talks about our worship, our vertical declaring God's glory, but it also has this horizontal dimension. Declare his glory among the nations. 
It's an act of worship and it's an act of mission, and both motivated by this desire to declare God's glory. So the final word will not be with earth's kingdoms. Habakkuk has given us a very different perspective on the Lord who reigns. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. It's the truth which Paul wrote to the Philippians and which we now read as we conclude. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Sovereign Lord, that in this turbulent world you are not taken by surprise by what may happen tomorrow, next year. You know the end from the beginning. And we thank you that as your people, even as we look into what for us is an uncertain and an unknown world, we have absolutely nothing to fear. We are roped to you, the safest guide in the universe. We look forward with all of creation to that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.